The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. Okay. Um, I thought this morning to continue um, the exploration of mindfulness of the body. Um, Last week, um, we talked um, about what what it might mean to have an embodied practice. Um, You know, if we think about mindfulness itself as present moment awareness, it's one, one definition of mindfulness, present moment awareness. Um, It turns out that becoming aware of the body, becoming aware in the body, becoming aware through the body, is a very, very helpful thing. And it's a very helpful place to become aware. You know, it's, we could stare at a candle flame, we could, you know, I don't know, one of the different kinds of meditation practices, but there's something about the body something about bringing awareness into the body. Um, There was a a headline that caught my eye the other day, and it was a study, and it's the, the, basically the headline said something like, uh, well, I can tell you exactly what it said. It said, to get better at reading people's feelings, pay attention to your own body. And not that we, not that we need to somehow prove the value of meditation practice, the value of Dharma practice by looking at scientific studies. But sometimes it's a little interesting to it can illuminate some some aspect of meditation practice. And in this study, what they did is they they took two groups of people. Um, the first group of the first group, they had them watch a scene on a TV. In, it was muted, and see if they could guess people's emotions, people's attitudes, what was going on in that scene. The second group of people, if I'm remembering this right, they first had them count their heartbeats. And it, this kind of this clever way of getting someone to quiet down and tune in to the body with some degree of awareness, attention, to be able to, you have to be pretty quiet to sort of feel your heartbeat. And they, they weren't taking their pulse, they, weren't, they were actually just feeling it. Then they looked at the same scene on, on the television and they were much more accurate at perceiving, empathizing um, what other people were going through. And, you know, I looked at that as, of course, you know, um, the more connected we are to ourselves, the more connected we are to our bodies, the better we'll understand ourselves and the more we'll understand other people. Um, So that's sort of the gist of this this first way that I wanted to offer the mindfulness of the body practice, which is um, 
using the body as a place to become more mindful and all of the benefits and values and around that and the ways to do that. Um, as I was sitting here, one of the things that I was thinking about was the this what happens when we daydream? You know, everybody does and not necessarily anything wrong with it. Actually, some people say that there's this very creative aspect of daydreaming when we're not trying to solve a problem, but we just let the mind kind of think and wander and go and dream that we make connections, new, new ideas come up. And so it's a very nice aspect of the mind. Um, but there's a way that daydreaming is almost the opposite of a body-centered mindfulness practice. And the reason I say this is because at least my experience of daydreaming, when I daydream, I am in an imaginary world. You know, I've gone off someplace, usually. Sometimes it's someplace more pleasant. Sometimes it's someplace not so pleasant. But it's, I've gone off somewhere and I've lost awareness of the body often. I've lost a connection to the body, um, which would be fine. And I think in many cases it is fine. But now here's the interesting thing. Even though I've lost, we've lost connection to the body, awareness of the body, the body's still there. And the body's still doing things. The body is still impacted and reacting, responding to what's happening in the mind. So if I um, spend a lot of time worrying and really caught up in worrying and really thinking about the future with a lot of fear and thinking about what's the worst thing that could happen and not only thinking about what's the worst thing, the sort of a rehearsing or really visualizing that and getting myself more worried. I may not be noticing the body so much. I'm, I'm totally caught and, and absorbed in this mental world. Um, but the body is reacting to that. The body's having its own response to that. And then it's possible to notice that and to check in and to see, wow, the body has reacted to this imaginary world I've created. And if I am dreaming of a circumstance where um, fear has arisen, then very often the body will have a fear response. The heart rate will increase. It's as if it's actually happening. If I imagine a scenario where I'm embarrassed and, and I've noticed this, my fa- I'll blush, you know, and I think we can kind of relate to this. So there is this intimate connection between the mind and the body. But when we're only in this imaginary world, when we're daydreaming, when we're not connected, when awareness is not including the body, the body is still, there's still an impact to the body which, we may, which we're not aware of. Um, the, the other thing that I was reading that, that um, 
I thought was interesting and just in this mind-body connection is the phenomenon of spontaneous remission from disease. And which basically means that if a person has a, has a disease and then the disease goes away. And this, is happen- this happens, it's documented in the medical literature. It's quite rare, of course. Um, but there's a, there's a doctor, professor at Harvard who studies this. He studies spontaneous remission. And he's, he said that this is one of the areas of medicine that it's one of the least studied, which is a little bit strange because you would think that the people who are spontaneously cured of, of, of really serious diseases, I mean, that would be pretty interesting people to study. So he studies them. And the diseases are all different. The people are all different. But one of the things that these very unusual people have in common is that they use the occasion of their illness to um, do a certain kind of inner work that it wasn't like a specific practice or a specific meditation or this or that, but some kind of questioning or some kind of inner work that ended up changing their relationship to themselves. You know, and I thought this was very interesting that, um, and that there was something about deeply listening to the body, deeply accepting themselves that somehow that maybe this was one of the factors that they had in common. And maybe this had something to do with the, the body shifting, something shifted in the body in terms of, in response to perceptions or habits that, that they, that shifted in, in the mind. So, one of the very helpful um, approaches to mindfulness of the body or to working with the body in this way, I think of as listening to the body. You know, I tell myself, listen, what, listen to the body. You know, and there's something about listening that is a form of awareness that is a little bit more difficult to manipulate what we're listening to. A little bit, you know, when it's like, And you'll see this in this next, this next, this second part of mindfulness of the body, which has to do with ways of looking at the body, that you can shift a perception and you can see it one way and then you can see it another way. And that can be very helpful in practice. But there's something about listening for me that is, um, that's receptive, that is accepting, that is is um, is this kind of compassionate attending to, you know. So rather than having like various lasers, we're shooting out into different parts of our body to be mindful of this and be mindful of this. Be mindful of that. What is it just to have a relaxed, receptive, whole body awareness that is kind? That's, um, 
that's not at all in conflict, that's accepting whatever, whatever is, is being listened to, whatever is being, um, whatever is being known by the mind. And then there's something that can be very healing in this kind of listening, you know, in this kind of accepting this body in this moment, accepting this body exactly as it is, however it, however it has shown up on the chair, on the cushion. And, and then when we learn to, when we practice in meditation and listening to the body in this way, then like in that study, there's, at least I know for myself, when, when I've been sitting, when I've been meditating, there's more of a chance, it's not guaranteed, <laughs> but there's more of a chance that when I talk to someone or when I meet someone, I can do it with a kind, receptive awareness that is listening a lot more than is talking, than is trying to fix, trying to change, trying to improve, trying to that deadly impulse to give advice, (laughs) which even if someone says they want advice, don't believe them. (laughs) You know, most people don't want. Most of us, most of us, I think, really want to be seen, want to be heard, want to be listened to. Um, And even if someone says they want advice, I would really, really, at least I tell myself to really, really, you know, um, be reluctant to to give advice because um, it's so easy for the advisor to morph into the fixer, and you know, and this is a person who has a problem, and I'm going to fix you, and you, know, you even you don't you might not even know you have a problem, but I'll you know I'll I'll find your problem and fix you. And, and we do this with ourselves. We do this with ourselves in meditation. In, in, that's the relationship that many of us have with ourselves most of the time, is fixing, is improving, is criticizing. Is So there's a way that mindfulness of the body is a way of letting go of that and of coming into a new relationship of listening, of openness, and... It's one of these very interesting um, Dharma reflections that you can just drop in, or drop in before a meditation, or drop in at any time. Is um, what is what is the body trying to tell me right now, or what is the body trying to say, or what is this heart, this mind, trying to t- tell me, and what would it mean for my life? to listen to that, you know, to take that in. Um, when we don't listen, when we're not sensitive in, in catching it on the whisper, sometimes it gets louder and it gets louder and louder and louder to a point where we can't, we can't ignore it, you know, or something erupts. Maybe it's a panic attack or... Um, about with anxiety or depression or, or other things. And it's, it's, it's saying, stop, listen to me, listen to this, be here. Um, 
So um, the body as this very precious uh, place of information about ourselves and the value of having a practice where we come into relationship with the body, listen to the body, and we learn things. We learn things about ourselves. Um, So that's this big area of this first aspect of of working with the body as a very valuable place. I would almost say, I mean, I would say it's a sacred, sacred relationship and a sacred place to learn about ourselves, to develop mindfulness. Um, and the other thing just to say, which I did say last week as well, is that because there is a... Um, a way that experience and memories um, get imprinted in the body. Um, It is, um, I think, just to approach any body-based practice with a lot of kindness and a lot of tenderness. And because the more we come into the body, the more we get out of just being up in this imaginary world and come in to feel what we're feeling or feel what's there, um, that can sometimes release memories and difficult um, emotions and, and just to approach it with a lot of gentleness, a lot of, a lot of kindness without some, this should, should do it this way. This should be happening. It just, you know, Usually when, when we have this whole body awareness, our intuition will guide us of what's the parts of the body that need attention, what's the parts of the body that, um, that it feels a little bit um, scary or reluctant to go in there and then to give a lot of space around that, not to feel that we need to have anything particular happen. Um, So that's this aspect of of listening to the body. And then in terms of um, the Buddha's instructions on on, uh, Satipatthana, establishing mindfulness, the first of these four areas is mindfulness of the body. Um, But interestingly, what's offered is not only the, the practices of being mindful of the whole body, being mindful of the breath, being mindful of the postures, standing, sitting, walking, lying down, which are kinds of the things we talk about. But um, if, if we think about that, one of the big themes of the Buddhist teaching is offering ways that help to free us from clinging to some sense of self. And the, one of the main, the big, you know, if not the biggest area that we identify with in our experience that we, that we, that we are so close to, so intimate with in a way, is our body. And, and it's a very, very sort of ordinary, very normal thing to say, my body is myself. My body is me. There's some aspect of, 
of the body. That's who I really am, or that's part of who I really am. Um, and, and so the Buddha says that if we attach to something that is changing, that's impermanent, that will inevitably um, come apart and, 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 and go away, like the body, we'll suffer, you know? And, um, so, so within this practice of mindfulness of the body, um, a big part of it is, is what we've already talked about, listening to, bo- to the body, coming into the body, connecting to the body, um, and as we do that, as we start to uh, come home to ourselves, come home to our bodies, we start to, it's possible to begin to see into the nature of the body in a deeper way. And the, the basic practice is seeing into the basic insight is seeing into the impermanence of the body, seeing, seeing into the fact that the body is uh, not one thing, not one solid, you know, lasting entity, but is actually, body is just a concept, body is just an idea. And um, when we attend to our experience of the body with mindfulness, we start to, maybe we start to notice, wait a second, this is just sensations that are happening in space. They're not, it's not one thing. And it's constantly changing, constantly arising and passing. Um, And the idea of insight practice or how mindfulness practice can mature into insight practice is um, through this doorway of impermanence, is seeing so deeply the changing nature of what we're observing that it's like there's nothing to hold on to there. There's nothing that's really there that we can really grasp. And in seeing that, in seeing that enough times, in getting really close to that truth, something in the mind starts to get it. Something in the mind starts to loosen up and let go. And, um, so the second big area is um, having, using mindfulness to have insight into the nature of the body. And in, in these teachings, the Buddha offered three main ways of doing this. And I'll just talk about them a little bit. Um, not as, uh, you know, it's just to offer them as, as, as sort of um, modes of perception that we can adopt. It's like ways of looking at the body that at certain times can be helpful. And they're not meant to be, at least in my understanding, that they're not meant to be absolute truths but they're meant to be, you know, ways of seeing experience that are helpful in letting go. You know, it's like when I drive, 
there's a way of seeing, there's a way of thinking about all the other drivers that they're out to get me, they're out to block my way, they're out to slow me down, you know, whatever else they're doing, there's this sort of relationship. And when I look at the world that way, when I look at other drivers that way, that affects my experience, that affects how I drive, that affects how I feel my body, that affects my stress levels. Or there's another way of, of looking that every driver on the road is my teacher. Every driver on the road is this enlightened being who's there to help me, guide me, make me, help me be more aware, protect me. And then I'm, that changes my attitude, that changes my stress level, that changes how I relate to them, how I want to take care of them for taking care of me so well. So it's just an example of ways of shifting per- perception affects our, our, our mind. So the Buddha offered these three areas, of uh, three ways of looking at the body. The first one is to see the body as a collection of anatomical parts. Anatomical organs, anatomical parts. And, and, you know, in the meditation, it's very interesting. It goes through, this is the, this is the kidney. This is the spleen. This is the flesh. This is the skin. This is the hair. Um, It turns out that when we identify with our body, it's usually of the body as this cohesive whole. You know, when I brush my hair in the morning after taking a shower, it's, it's not so much of like, it's about the hair or something, but it's about the hair as part of ev- the whole thing. And I know that for myself is that I, you know, I have a little bit of fondness for, for, for the hair, being clean, being neat. But when I see my hair in the drain or something, you know, there's not that much fondness for it. <laughs> and actually, it's almost the opposite of fondness. There's a little bit of like, yuck. <laughs> you know, or cleaning out a drain. Why would that be different looking at the hair on someone's head versus going into the shower drain and, and, and cleaning it out? And there's all this hair there. It's still, it's just hair, right? It's hair, it's hair. But there's something about, I think for myself, when I think about it, reflect on it, there's something about being reminded that it's just hair and it's just a sort of aspect of the body that is not me, not mine, that's impersonal, that's impermanent. And it's like, oh yeah, yuck, that's, clean that up. Um, and there's a way that we don't really like to be reminded that there's an aspect of us that is simply a collection of physical, physiological organs that are cooperating for, 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 for a while. Um, one of the practices in the traditional classical Buddhist practice is to meditate with 
a, a corpse. And, to, and sometimes monks will even, you know, in this sort of modern day, will go to see a, an autopsy. And that is something that I think, you know, is, um, I've, I've never witnessed an autopsy, but I imagine it would be quite a difficult, not being a medical person or trained in that way, it would be really difficult. Why? Why is that difficult for us? Why is it difficult to be reminded that this body is, um, has this dimension of being these different, these different organs that are just working together? Um, there's a story that's kind of, I don't want to be too, um, I don't want to say something that's too uh, difficult or graphic, but I don't think this, the, the, a friend of mine who is a monk, as part of his training, he was observing an autopsy. Or I think one of, one of his students was a pathologist, and this is in Asia and Sri Lanka, and invited him. And being a monk, being someone who is um, devoted his life to deeply understanding the impermanence of the body, he sort of jumped at the chance and he thought this was great. And he'd done a lot of these intensive practices. But I think it was a young person who, who had passed away very recently. And, you know, and, and the pathologists, you know, they, you know, a professional person, they, you know, do their thing and, and sort of kind of open things up. And then so the whole body was open. And then my friend, the monk, was looking at the stomach and he said, just with kind of delight, he said, oh, look, lentils. <laughs> and when he said that, the police officer who had to be there to observe, you know, basically just lost it you know, and had, a, had quite a, you know, what you could imagine, a, a very, you know, um, he was in a lot of distress and just, and just this shift of perception can be very unsettling when we're, when we're not used to thinking of the body like this. So the Buddha offered this practice and it's not a practice that we tend to emphasize or teach here. And I think one of the reasons is that um, it's a practice that is may be more helpful when we have a lot of practice connecting to the body in this first way. When we're really being with the body with a lot of kindness, a lot of acceptance, a lot of uh, connection, then these, these sort of insight or these wisdom practices um, have more of a base, have more of a foundation. Um, f- so I think for Westerners, you know, We're sensitive around this. Um, The Buddha offered this anatomical practice in particular as an antidote for lust. You know, we're caught in lust, caught in seeing the body as this very, very attractive um, object to, to, to take, to own. And the interesting thing is it could be lust for another person, but the Buddha connected lust for others as it's, it's connected to lust for ourselves in a certain way. It's connected to desire for ourselves. It's connected to this, um, this sort of 
wish for permanence, wish for continuity in some way. And it's just an interesting thing to, to, to reflect on. So if we're caught in that kind of lust, then being reminded that myself, me, or another person is also this collection of anatomical parts can be a sort of, you know, a shift of perspective again. It's a, you know, most of us don't have a lot of passion or arousal for a skeleton, you know, or for, for, for a body that is, doesn't have skin on it, you know, or doesn't have a, you know, there's something that it needs that perception of, 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 of sort of um, seamlessness in order to support, to support something like lust. And so, so the Buddha offers this as, a, as an antidote. Um, now, is this a useful perception to adopt on my honeymoon? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> you know, and, and part of the skill of Dharma practice is knowing when to employ a certain perception and when is it not appropriate. And so, th- so th- you know, it's not like it's an absolute truth. It's one perception. Um, just to briefly talk about the other two, the second perception is to see the body as elements, as these four elements. So the Buddha talked about earth, fire, water, and wind as being these elements of our experience that we can perceive. Again, not as necessarily an absolute truth, but like in the body, in any moment, I can perceive some sense of hardness, some sense of solidity. Maybe that's the sense of the sit bones touching the cushion or that kind of firmness. Um, We can see that as the earth element. In the same way, any sense of heat would be the, the, the fire element. A sense of fluid, fluidity of wetness, maybe the, the wetness in the mouth or the sense of fluids in the body, that would be the water element and so on. So w- why? What's, what's the point of this? Um, very basically, it's in recollecting and remembering that this body, there's, an, there's a dimension of this body that is simply the elements, which are universal, which are part of nature, which are out there, in here and out there. Maybe it's not so different. Maybe, maybe there's a way of, instead of seeing this as my anger, that is either something to be proud of or to be acted out or to be ashamed of or to be gotten rid of, maybe there's a way of just seeing my anger as, oh, there's a lot of heat there. That's the fire element. Right. Fire is part of nature. Fire is everywhere. Okay. It's, maybe it's not so personal. Maybe it's not so much me and mine. But there's, so there's a way of shifting into an impersonal, to see the impersonality, to see the universality, which is... Um, for the Buddha, 
very supportive of this insight into not-self. You know, the more I can perceive this experience of this body as simply the elements passing through, simply wind elements, simply movement, the breath as the wind. There's wind outside, there's wind inside. Great. You know, we can see that and there can be this shift of like, okay, okay, this is, I don't have to take this all so personally. So that's the, f- the four elements. And then the, the third one is this, I kind of alluded to it a little bit, but is seeing this body, um, seeing the, the dimension of this body that is mortal, that is subject to sickness, subject to decay, um, that this, this deep value in um, remembering the, um, the fleetingness of life and that just like everything else in nature, this body too will one day die this body too will one day return to nature. The elements will return to nature. The anatomical parts will return to nature. And not as a, not as a depressing perception, but as a perception that has the capacity to free us, that has the capacity to um, help us come into relationship with our life in a different way to see, um, I mean, it's almost like human, some people say human beings are the only animal. I don't know if this is true, but there's this idea that human beings are the only animal who know we will die. And this has the capacity to um, free us if we relate to it one way and it has the capacity to terrorize us, <laughs> you know, and if it, maybe if it's always kept in the background, it's always unconscious and it's always, but it's always there, but it's this sort of elephant in the room that we can't, we don't have the tools to, to, to deal with. We have the tools to, to be with, um, it sort of runs our life and it sort of limits our life. Um, but when we, when we are able to um, hold this truth and be with this truth of impermanence and be with this truth of the nature of the body, um, it's possible that something else can open or we can come into um, a, a relationship with death that is not that's not characterized by fear. Um, Some people say, or some studies have have said that um, people who meditate uh, tend to have less of a fear of death. Um, And even just doing a simple mindfulness practice 
there's a way that we start to, the whole being starts to relax and starts to open to truth in all its different forms. Um, I have, and some people uh, describe Dharma practice, Buddhist practice, as, as, as basically preparation for death, you know, in, in its larger sense. And um, in having been with some uh, practitioners, some people who uh, were in the dying process, it gave me a lot of um, confidence and faith and, and inspiration to see that it's possible to have a very beautiful death. It's possible to have a peaceful death. It's possible to um, be so so in line or so at peace with the nature of things that, um, you know, that there's not resistance. Um, so, so this recollection of, 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 of death, of mortality, is sometimes called in Dharma practice the elephant's footprint. You know, the elephant's footprint is, is big enough to include all the different animals, all the different footprints, all the different animals. So it's this like, this, the widest practice, the, the, the most um, fundamental practice in a way. Of, um, and then there are different ways that, that this is offered by the Buddha. One of the ways is just these recollections, you know, this body is of the nature of, of dying and has not gone beyond death. And um, another way that, um, that I've, I've heard taught is, is working, with, working with impermanence of the body using the breath. And with each in-breath, it's like breathing in life to the body. And with each exhalation, it's this letting go, this release. And it's just this keeping in mind that without this breath, I couldn't be alive. This breath supports life. You know, and one day, um, this breath will stop. You know, and it, it, when that's just, you know, when I drop that into to this mind, it has the effect of making me more interested in the breath. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, right. This is my link to existence. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And, um, So, so I hope this gives you a little bit of a sense of these insight practices around the body. And as I said before, part of the skill of meditation and the skill of practice is listening to, to what is the kind of practice, the form of practice that this being needs right now. That it's not like, oh, I should do X, Y, Z. I should 
recollect the impermanence of the body all the time. Um, no, that's not, that's not, that's probably not that helpful for most of us. Um, there'll be times when it, when it, when it may feel very helpful or it may just, you know, having heard this, it may just arise organically, you know, sitting with the breath, being, listening to the body in a very kind way. And then something shifts or something opens and it's like, oh, yes. The sort, the sort of poignancy of impermanence, the tenderness of impermanence. Um, one of the um, wonderful practices that many, that many meditators and, and Dharma practitioners, some, have, have found their way to is hospice work and is working with people who are in that transition. And one of the lessons that I, that in, in the little experience I've had, and in, but what, what, what I've read and what I've heard from friends who, who do this quite a lot, is that it's a great reminder of the futility of fixing, <laughs> the futility of giving advice, the futility of, um, you know, when someone, I remember someone once said, when um, a friend of mine who was one of the founders of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco in the 1980s, and he said, for a hospice volunteer, having a lighter is a very useful thing to have. And I thought, why would having a lighter be useful? And then as he unpacked it and said it, it's like, well, of course, you know, people who are um, in hospice, you know, may or may not be smokers. But if someone is a smoker, that's not the time to be, you know, hey, that's not so good for you or blah, blah, blah. You know, it's about being with the person, meeting the person where they are, um, offering ourselves them, listening in a deep way, um, holding that space, um, which is really what the body wants, which is really what we all want, is to be seen, to be listened to, to be heard. And so I just always had that image of this hospice volunteer um, being ready to, to meet whatever arises and, and without judgment, without um, fear, without um, needing to fix. And that's the mind, that's the heart that we can bring into meditation and that we can offer to ourselves. And by learning to do that to ourselves, to, to meet ourselves and see ourselves um, as being fundamentally fine, fundamentally whole, fundamentally worthy of being witnessed, um, that in itself is healing. That in itself changes our relationship and then uh, changes our relationship to our body, changes our relationship to our, our, our psychological being, and then has the potential of changing the of how we relate to others. It could be a, a great gift that we offer to others. Um, so, so maybe that's, that's, 
that's a good place to end of this, um, the potential of, of mindfulness of the body. And um, just the appreciation, the awe, the miracle of, of, of having a body is um, such a wonderful uh, place to, to land in our practice. So I thank you very much uh, for, for being here and for bringing your body here. And <laughs> nice to sit with other bodies. <laughs> um, we have a few minutes. Does anybody, would anyone like to say something, some thoughts, reflections? Well, your talk was a good reminder to me, or stimulus to uh, meditate on aspects of me that is not me uh, that I don't often meditate on. But I'm wondering, as an ideal, whether it would make more sense to meditate uh, or be mindful of I'm trying I'm trying to bring the mind and the body together since they are together um, but we seem to uh, I often hear not just your talk but often hear talks in which we are either mindful of the mind or mindful of the body and yet they are one yeah yeah no yeah they um, they, they're one and um, bringing the mind into the body through just kind of mindfulness of the body practice is, is one way of remembering that they're one. I think often in our experience we forget that they're one. So we're either in one place or we're, or we're in the other and it's usually in in the, you know, in the, in the world of ideas and 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 you know images and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, it's a. Um, is that? I just wanted to say that um, Insight Santa Cruz, Bob Stahl, yeah. leads the body meditation. Um, where you go through all the parts of the body, including every endocrine system. And, and it's over several weeks, if not months, on Friday mornings when he's done it. So you could look that up if anybody's interested in that. I haven't done it myself, but friends have and more than once, and I've found it really powerful. Thank you. Thank you. That's, um, I think that he may even have some things online. You could kind of... Um, someone had said that as well, that... Yeah, there is a, it's, it's like the way I was um, instructed or one, one way of doing it is through body scans. And there's a way of, you can go very slowly or very quickly in kind of just, I mean, the way I was taught it was a sort of an abbreviated way of, with the anatomical parts, it was skin, flesh, and bones. So you sort of scan through the body and, just perceiving the skin of the body, 
you know, from the head to the toes. Then you go back up, perceiving the flesh of the body. And then you go back down, perceiving the bones. You know, whatever that means to you in the, you know, and it just is it's this like shift of perspective. And, and I, I think Bob offers it in this very classical way where you really slowly develop the perception of all of these aspects of the anatomy. And, and it it's actually can be a concentration practice as well. So, you know, it's, it's just one, one doorway into mindfulness of the body. Um, but if, if, it, if it appeals to you, then, then, then by all means, you know, look it up. And um, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, one other thing in terms of body practice is, is movement. And I don't, I don't know if that's in the Buddhist tradition because in the, in, um, I mean, I know walking, so concentrating right. on right. experience right. of walking. Um, but allowing free movement mm. and how the body is, in, like with no music or anything, but just how the body is in Finding the place in which movement wants to happen from a place that isn't from the mind. And so discovering from within what's... And it creates that, in my experience, sometimes that experience of being fully in the body, but completely spirit at the same time. Like, Um. it's just, it's this oneness in a way, so that the, the truth can come through the body. Beautiful, beautiful. I don't know, is there anything like that in Buddhism? This is called authentic movement, the practice I do, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, it sounds a little bit, I mean, there's probably some differences with sensory awareness, which was another modality that that was often offered as a complement to Zen or or Vipassana practice. Um, It's a good question. I, you know... It's interesting that both Buddhism and the kind of yoga, I mean, the kind of yoga we think about as like body yoga, you know, hatha yoga, comes from India and comes from that culture. I think yoga is, I think, I, I think the teachings of the Buddha predate the, the kind of the yoga suttas, sutras, and, and that. So there's, you know, as you say, there's walking, there's, there's definitely emphasis of being mindful in movement um, and the value of that. And it's said, I, I couldn't quote the place, but I, I believe in, in the early teachings that it said that more people become enlightened during walking meditation, during any other form or any other posture. And that's the one that's that we're moving in. So, and in a way, I understand that or can relate to that is that there's, when we're moving, it's very natural to move. And when we're moving, there's a, there's a chance to be less self-conscious and sort of let go of something. So someone could develop certain qualities in a very deep way in sitting. But then there's some thread or more than a thread of 
selfing or self-consciousness or something. And then so it's like, you know, ding, the bell rings and you get up and, and, and walk out and, you know, boom. And so, so movement is, you know, being mindful during movement is, is definitely very valued. Um, and I think there are many pra- complementary practices that um, I know Ajahn Suchito, who's one of the, you know, one of the elders in our Theravada tradition, he has quite a um, deep Qigong practice. And I talked to him a little bit about that at a conference a few weeks ago. And, and he was saying how helpful it is to do before, med- before sitting and just sort of moving the energy and clearing the energy. And he's written on that. He has a wonderful blog. And I think one of his blog posts is about this. I think it's called something to do with standing. That's the title. But um, just bring, you know, that the, that the value of, of, of movement and it opens up something in the body and connect to the body in a different way. So, you know, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Mm.